This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. You're listening to the Doom Books Network. This is the Drugs, Addiction, and Recovery Podcast. My name is Lucas Rickard, and welcome everyone. Hagai Ram is an historian of the modern Middle East at Ben-Gurion University of Negev. His teaching and research focus uh, is on the social and cultural history of Iran, on Palestine, Israel, and the Levant region. It's wonderful to have him with us today. Let me tell you about a little bit uh, about what he's written and what we're going to talk about today. He's the author of Iranophobia, the logic of an Israeli obsession. He's the author of Reading Iran in Israel, Self and Other, Religion and Modernity. And he's also the author of Myth and Mobilization in Revolutionary Iran. However, today he's here to talk about intoxicating Zion, a Social History of Hashish in Mandatory Palestine in Israel, which was just published with Stanford University Press. Haggai, it's great to have you here. Thank you so much for having me, Luke. It seems a lifetime ago that we were in person talking to each other uh, in China, and I got to uh, know a little bit about you. Um, But let's start off maybe with your background for the listeners Uh, Can you tell us about yourself and how you got into the topic of cannabis and hashish? Oh, sure. I think that you actually slightly um, mentioned it because for the greater part of my career, I've been a historian of modern Iran. Um, And the the, the pre-1979 Islamic Revolution and the post-1979 Islamic Revolution period um, and in my research and teaching, what I try to do is, is to break free not only of the field's um, confinement to regional studies uh, and methodolo- methodological nationalisms, but I also try to liberate Iranian studies and by extension Middle East studies uh, from the, uh, what I can call the epistemic self-sufficiency of Orientalism as a mode of uh, knowledge and production. Now, insofar as the Israeli academia is concerned, I also endeavored uh, to critique the deficiencies um, and uh, limitations inherent in viewing Iranian realities strictly uh, through strategic and security perspectives. So, although I have established myself as a historian of Iran um, uh, for over two decades, I I gradually became, and how should I put it mildly, um, a bit bored with it. And so I felt that I needed to uh, infuse new blood into my um, scholarly passions, as it were. So I therefore set out to, uh, to discover new fields, uh, new topics to research and teach. So uh, during that pursuit, I, um, I encountered 
I have to admit by chance, uh, um, uh, literature um, about various histories of drugs, uh, cannabis, opiates, uh, cocaine, but also tobacco and, and coffee uh, in, in different places and, and in different temporalities. Um, so on, uh, retrospectively, um, a part and parcel of what I think was uh, Paul Gutenberg, who uh, defined as, as a new drug history, as the new drug history, which was launched in the, uh, in the late 1990s. This literature, this literature examined uh, histories of drugs as parts of larger and connected realms of, of, um, of cross-border politics, econo economics, and culture, which cannot be studied adequately if we, if we privilege the state as the, as, as the exclusive um, category of analysis. So uh, I have to say that I was, I was immediately drawn uh, to the subject. Uh, so as I delved some more into the literature, I learned that actually there literally there is no historical study whatsoever on drugs and society in Palestine, Israel, which has which is that which has been undertaken. So um, the research project, which I've just completed and you mentioned, which came out with uh, Stanford University Press, which began nearly a decade ago, I guess, was aimed at addressing this this lacuna. I guess I wonder. Um... One question just popped into my mind quickly is why is there this lacuna? You know, if you had to speculate about this gap. Well, um, well, since Israel is, is situated in the Middle East, right? So uh, Middle East histories or Middle East studies has been usually uh, quite late in, in acquiring um, new methodologies, new, new topics. Um, and, um, there has been in the past uh, um, quite a few um, dissertations, uh, mm. books and articles on drugs in the Middle East, but uh, for some reason, Palestine Israel has, has not been included. And therefore I thought, this is it. I mean, for a historian, this is a gold mine. Um, yeah. I, this, this is uh, how I came to it. So tell us a little bit about uh... Israel and cannabis in Israel at the present moment. So I don't want to be overly contemporary and presentist. I know we're both historians, but what's the current situation? Um, you know what? I have I have an op-ed, which I incidentally have here. Um, I think it would be best if I, op-ed, which was published in the liberal uh, Israeli newspaper, Haaretz, uh, which I think would be would be great and would be the best way to start uh, addressing this question. And, and mm. in this... Um, this op-ed, which was published a couple of years ago, I, if I remember correctly, it described uh, Israel's or described the country's Jewish population as, as a nation of stoners, and quote, unquote. Um, and if I can read to you a very short passage from it, I think that that would be quite illustrative. Now, it, it, goes, it goes like this. A love of pot smoking is shared among all populations in Israel. Hilltop settler youth and Tel Aviv radicals young and old, Knesset members and simple folk, city and country people, religious and secular, everyone loves pot. Marana and hashish are the largest common denominator in Israeli society. Despite the common ideals held by hippies in Israel, it turns out that one can be a religious fanatic, a human rights trampling racist, or a warmongering militarist, and still be incredibly good at rolling joints. No problem. Pot couldn't be any more common in Israel. There aren't enough lungs. Okay, so uh, now again, I, I assume, or not assume, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm 
certain that this description of, of Jewish Israel as a nation of stoners is, is an overstatement. Yet, um, a, a 2017 survey conducted by the Israel Anti-Drug Authority validates this general impre- impression and also backed it up with hard numbers. The survey found a dramatic surge in the prevalence of cannabis use by Israelis, Jews, and non-Jews alike. 27% of the adult population reported using cannabis in the past year in comparison to just under 9% in 2009. Um, now, a comparison which I, which, I, which I did with surveys conducted in other countries shows that Israel is probably at the top of cannabis use by adult populations with Iceland and the US lagging behind at 18 and 16% respectively. Mm-hmm. Now, um, this, is not, this is not all of the story because it is vital to note that Israel is one of the first countries to legalize medical marijuana. Furthermore, by uh, running a state-supported program of medical cannabis and cannabis research, Israel became war world renowned for pioneering cannabis cultivation and extraction technologies. So these and other circumstances have combined to to currently make Israel, I believe, uh, an international leader in cannabis research, fueled in part by the highest percentage of financial resources devoted to that pursuit by any nation. So much so that former high-ranking politicians, including two former prime ministers, and retired military officers, retired police officers, business entrepreneurs, and even a Nobel Prize laureate have recently joined Israel's thriving medical cannabis industry. So um, it is not surprising that in November of last year, Israel's justice minister announced a plan to legalize recreational cannabis within nine months. Now, I'm also proud to report that I served as an advisor to the uh, Justice Ministry Committee that proposed this plan. And I don't want to be sensationalist here, but it seems like the country is something of a cannabis superpower. Oh, yes, indeed. Yes, indeed, it is. It is. Uh, Although, again, although um, it has not been legalized yet, um, I mean, if you just walk out the streets of Tel Aviv, I mean, there is is cannabis smelling, there's cannabis smell all over, whether, Mm. again, that was before before the the closure of the... um, of, of the corona crisis, but just walking along the cafes and the restaurants and just people out in the street have been smoking like there is no tomorrow. Maybe I'm going to get a copy of that uh, op-ed you mentioned, and I can uh, send that out to listeners when the, when this podcast goes out as well. Sure, I'll send it to you um, as soon as, we, as we're done here. So I've got a copy of your book in front of me, and I know that People can't see it because they're only listening to this, but it's a beautiful looking book. Uh, You've you've already mentioned that it's the first major uh, work to explore uh, the history of um, cannabis hashish um, in uh, Israel and Palestine. And that's really exciting just in itself. Uh, And I suppose uh, my uh, obvious next question um, has to be um, where it is situated um, within uh, the literature uh, with respect to cannabis. Um, maybe 
maybe a bit more broadly with drugs, as you mentioned Gutenberg's uh, drugs history as well, the new drug history. Right, right. So um, the thing is here that I, um, when I when I set out to, uh, when I researched this book, I came upon really previous, so much previously untapped archive, archival networks, um, archival documents, which were a goldmine, because again, um, no, one, no historian had ever used them uh, before. So it was- uh, That's very- awesome. It was awesome. Yes, it was awesome. And these, these are documents which I, um, which I collected from several Israeli archives, um, uh, um, in, in a couple of archives in the UK and archives in the United States, which had uh, addressed uh, hashish, uh, the hashish trade and hashish consumption uh, in mandatory Palestine and the state of Israel. Uh, so, so this was this was. Uh, very exciting. Now, I'll be I'll be a bit um, humble here. I'll just say that um, um, since the um, since drug history should um, um, apply uh, global perspectives, because this is after all a, an interconnected world, and and one cannot really um, ascertain or evaluate the history of, of any kind of drugs just limiting oneself to the uh, territory of one's country. So I think that that my book, um, uh, which really follows follows in the footsteps of, of you guys, I mean, from, I mean, of, of the new drug historians, um, I, as, as I, I was, I mean, I was introduced to the to to your your people's literature. I just followed what you had done and tried to apply it uh, to um, Israeli history. So I think that um, um, since drug history should apply a global perspective, I think that my book is just one, another missing link or another missing piece in the puzzle uh, that really demonstrates how uh, drug history is really connected, uh, interconnected, not just the field, but also uh, the topics themselves. So, you know, um, um, showing how hashish has been uh, uh, based on gendered uh, class and um, um, let's say orientalist assumptions has been done uh, with other um, with other books and other um, uh, articles which I had read. I just had to follow um, uh, your approaches and and apply it in, into my study. So I think again. So this is uh, a missing link uh, um, that I exposed or that I discovered, which will enable us to appreciate the global reach and interconnectivity of, of the topic of the subjects that we're dealing with. Mm. One thing that occurred to me is maybe not everyone listening has a good sense of what those um, Orientalist assumptions might be uh, and how they might have been applied or, or not applied. Uh, so, uh, you, you know, for, for scholars of, of cannabis um, and, it, and its different properties, there's often an understanding that sort of there's stigma and racialized um, notions that come along with it. But maybe you can just sketch out very, uh, very briefly or, or quickly for, for listeners, you know, what Orientalism means um, in your book or, or you know, with respect to to hashish, uh, yeah. Again, um, what what my book does in part is to um, use hashish as a screen on which human beings project their class, ethnic, and gender desires and anxieties. So, mm. um, 
so let me just tell you a little part, little part of my book, which, 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 um, which, uh, which actually um, address uh, the Jewish attitudes to hashish and the practices related uh, to the drug. And I think that will clarify the, the question. So um, as I show in my book, Jews in Mandatory Palestine, um, I also deal with the Arab population, but that's another part part of the story, but Jews in mandatory Palestine, and I mean here both Sephardi veterans and East European immigrants, they tended to stay clear of hashish. Now, in this, they were particularly receptive to uh, colonial knowledge, which was produced in, uh, in three main sites, India and Egypt, where the uh, British had contended with cannabis-oriented populations long before arriving to Palestine, and from the Geneva-based League of Nations, whose role, as we all know, was fundamental in shaping displaced, distorted, and even racist ideas about cannabis uh, around the world. So this knowledge molded hashish into a distinctively um, racialized oriental drug capable of animating the supposed pathologies inherent in the so-called mentality of oriental peoples, namely inordinate and excessive sexuality, homosexuality, uh, femininity, irrationality, insanity, uh, criminality, indolence, uh, and manipulability. So during the first decades of Zionism, uh, Jews largely refrained from hashish uh, smoking, partly due to its reputation as an Arab vice, and partly uh, due to fear that hashish use uh, by Jews would put the Zionist project in danger of submerging into a Levantine environment. Now, this is not the end of the story because these colonial or, or racist or orientalist misperceptions survived the establishment of the state of Israel and at the same time responded to, uh, to new demographic and political realities, namely the expulsion and flight of the Arab population of Palestine in the Nakba and the country's repopulation by Jews from the Middle East and North Africa, commonly known uh, in, as Mizrahim. So some of these Jews you had used hashish in their countries of origin and brought the habit with them to Israel. Um, other first and second generation immigrants from Muslim countries picked up on the habit in Israel owing to their socio-economic and ethnic calm, uh, racial marginalization. So in this way, hashish became a Jewish so-called problem where formerly it had largely been considered an Arab, man, an Arab one. So although the number of hashish uh, smokers probably, and I have no, there's no way to, uh, to determine the, the exact figure, but, so, but the, old, the number of hashish smokers probably did not exceed a few thousand in the 1950s and 1960s. Uh, the habit of these Mizrahim had uh, concretized and dramatized the dominant Ashkenazi classes' anxieties about over Levantinization. Now, at the same time, it also exacerbated, uh, exacerbated the marginalization and criminalization of the Mizrahi underclass in Israeli society. Now, it is perhaps, uh, to understand this Orientalism, it's perhaps interesting to know that the, the language used in this endeavor, in this campaign, uh, was reminiscent of older European uh, anxieties of reverse colonialism in the late 19th century, which spoke of, of, of an insidious invasion by, of Orientals and Oriental drugs uh, disrupting metrop metropolitan life and debilitating and immobilizing its citizens. So I think that quite addresses your question. Absolutely. It's an awesome answer. And I couldn't help thinking that some of those 
um, ideas about uh, pathologies and pathologization of different populations, something that plays out in many different countries uh, and is a common tactic often um, to separate um, policymakers. Which is uh, another example. Oh, I'm sorry. Which is yeah, another please. example of why why this is why this is a you know why this should be really uh, researched and, and and explored in in a global or at least in transnational perspective. I think it's such a sophisticated answer you gave, and I, I want to make sure that your grandmother, my grandmother, uh, and grandfathers out there have a, a sense of sort of the key takeaways uh, from the book. So if you were going to sort of communicate this in an elevator um, to say my grandmother, I mean, what would you, what would you say? Um, uh, okay. That's a very tough question. Um, so let me try to be uh, really succinct here. Okay. Um, I think the, the book has um, two interrelated objectives. The first one is to follow the transition uh, from mandatory Palestine to the state of Israel in the 1950s and 1960s through the perspective of hashish, which is an illicit commodity, which is smuggled across borders, traded, uh, consumed, regulated, endlessly debated, right? So uh, my book shows the, that the transition uh, from the Ottoman Empire to the mandatory period, and then from the mandatory period to the state of Israel, were not a pocal breakpoints in history. Uh, in addition to the persistence of, of the political and cultural horizons of the country's Jewish and Arab inhabitants, which, which has been discussed in, in previous scholarship, my book traces uh, trends of continuity and, 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 and change in the fields of regional drug networks, criminality, and drug culture, which survived these, transi these transitions, albeit in transfigured forms. The second objective, which I also already have hinted to, uh, is, is to situate the history of hashish in Palestine and Israel in a transnational context. Because the forces that were at play um, in the rise of hashish culture in Palestine and Israel originated, originated elsewhere in the Levant and beyond. Because contrary to conventional wisdom, uh, hashish consumption in the late Ottoman period appears to have been quite negligible in Palestine. Okay. Um, this, as I, as I discovered, began to change with the establishment of unprecedented global and, and regional controls over opiates and cannabis in the interwar years. Uh, so to overcome these incipient drug, drug control regimes, new circuits of exchange linked Palestine and later Israel to illicit supply chains stretching from Lebanon, the producing country in the north, to Egypt, the consuming country in the south ensuring the, the smuggling of vast quantities of hashish supplies across its territory to the extent that Palestine was regarded as the, um, um, as the, as the, the main way station of hashish in the Levant in the interwar years. So um, uh, this in turn led to uh, a significant increase in hashish consumption uh, by Palestine's uh, urban working class uh, Arab population. So uh, by the 1930s, hashish smoking ran rampant uh, throughout Palestine's urban centers of Jaffa, Haifa, Jerusalem, uh, Acre, uh, Nablus, Tiberias, Ramla, Lud, and even Tel Aviv, the, the, the first Hebrew city. And again, uh, venues for consumption, whether makeshift hashish dens, coffee houses, or brothels, proliferated 
in these towns and many persons could be seen wandering the streets uh, intoxicated. Um, my book also um, addresses the, 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 the Jewish uh, uh, part in this equation, which I've already uh, um, explained previously. And I just got to underline for listeners that Intoxicating Zion, uh, your book is innovative. This is the first time that you, these connections have been drawn and that you've you. tapped and you've tapped archives that, that haven't been used before. And uh, libraries and individuals should be buying and reading this book uh, as much as they, they possibly uh, can. Um, I, I don't want to pivot too quickly off the the uh, off this this book because it, I mean we should linger and celebrate it. But I, I also have to ask you know what's happening next. I mean what um, maybe you're not that kind of guy who is thinking about the next big project already. But I, I think it seems fair to ask. Oh sure sure I'm, I've already begun thinking about two projects. What? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, so there I have, I'll have plenty of work until my retirement. Um, the first one is, 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 a, is actually a research project, which I, also, I already um, presented at Shanghai last year. Mm. I'm only in the beginning, though. Um, but it, it explores the links between the uh, interwar Viennese Jewish underworld and the Levant. Because while, while researching for intoxicating Zion, I came across numerous archival sources in Israel, Europe, and the United States attesting to the uh, active involvement of many Jewish members of the uh, Viennese underworld in drug smuggling to and from the region. Now, these, these guys were mainly based in Cairo, and in some cases in Palestine and Lebanon as well. And they specialized in the heroin trade uh, to Egypt, to Europe, and the United States. Now, this Again, yeah, this revelation uh, was, was beyond the purpose and scope of my book, so I set it aside for future engagement. And so I recently began uh, working on that. Uh, I think this is also a lacuna because uh, that needs to be addressed because um, mm. although there are plenty of histories and literary works on, on the Viennese Jewish underworld and its global reach, right? Uh, none have, uh, have explored its activities in the Arab Middle East. So um, I'm excited about that. Now, there's another project which I have recently begun exploring which is crime and criminality in Jaffa and Tel Aviv during the 1950s and 1960s. Now, this too is a byproduct of my previous research on Hashish in Palestine, Israel. Um, what I'm particularly interested in is what became known as the large area, Hasheta Hagadol in Hebrew, which is previously part of Jaffa's old Arab city. Now, this area um, uh, acquired its name at the beginning of the Arab Revolt in the summer of 1936 when the British authorities leveled several hundred uh, houses in the area because they had provided cover for stone throwers and, and, and snipers. Home demolition was also carried out as a means of punishment and deterrence and for transforming some of the old city's alleys into patrol routes. The Israeli authorities resumed demolition of the Arab area during and immediately after the 1948 war with centuries-old buildings demolished and Jewish immigrants from the Balkans and North Africa uh, being brought in to reoccupy their remaining buildings. So by the, by, by, by the uh, early 1950s, uh, Jaffa's large area enjoyed a dubious reputation as Tel Aviv's alter ego or underground self. It was a location of casual uh, sexual encounters, a hotbed for crime, drugs, and gambling. Uh, and in the process, uh, 
the area became home to Orientalist fantasies and ethnic demons that created a place of contamination and revulsion, which is the Jewish antithesis to the white city of Tel Aviv, which is uh, perhaps, you know, a UNESCO World Heritage Site. So this is another lacuna. Oh, uh, one, one more thing that, that I might uh, mention here is that by the mid-1960s, mid uh, the area was rebuilt into a space of winding alleys filled with craft shops, restaurants, and art galleries, um, erasing uh, completely the, 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 uh, the, the Arabness of, of, of Jaffa in many ways, uh, which is, of course, uh, part and parcel of what the State of Israel has been doing since 1948. I'm really looking forward to hearing about some of the, uh, the vice and the sort of the, the, the nature of uh, consumption in these areas once mm -hmm. The, these uh, these projects get off the ground if they're not already off the ground and oh they're 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 hardly off the ground <laughs> <laughs> for now then I'm going to have to content myself um, with going over intoxicating Zion again and I, I want to just finally to uh, thank you Professor Hagai Ram um, for writing this book. Um, and uh, for joining me today and for all the listeners out there, Intoxicating Zion, A Social History of Hashish and Mandatory Palestine and Israel, published with Stanford University Press, is definitely worth your time. So I would, uh, I would go out there and, and pick up a copy or get it from the library if you can, listeners. And uh, Professor Ram, thanks again. Oh, thank you so much for the kind words and thank you so much for having me. This is a great opportunity. I enjoyed it very much. Thank you.